Estrogen and progesterone, they're not just your typical female sex hormones. A lot of scientific evidence has come out to support the neuroprotective effects of these hormones following a stroke, concussion, perhaps even a benefit against PTSD. Make sure to keep listening on to find out the details, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 37, where every week I arm you with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. I have gotten several requests to cover the topic of the hormones progesterone and estrogen. As previously, back in episode 16, I talked about testosterone. Now, this is a really big topic, and a lot of different subtopics within it could be covered. But in today's episode, I will share some scientific knowledge on the effects of progesterone and estrogen on the brain, on our behavior, on our body, and how the levels change with oral contraception, how they change throughout the cycle and with age, and how one can help obtain healthy levels. So as we always do, let's start off with some core takeaways. Estrogen and progesterone are called the female sex hormones because they regulate female reproductive functions. However, these hormones have important functions on brain activity in both men and women. Men and women have estrogen and progesterone receptors throughout the brain, which can regulate brain activity and behavior. Some evidence suggests that treatment with estrogen may have a protective effect in the brain following traumatic brain injury, such as stroke or concussion. Estrogen treatment may also modulate memory consolidation or fear learning following a traumatic incident, and therefore it can modulate the risk for PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. Natural levels of estrogen and progesterone change with systemic contraceptive use, such as birth control pills or the -the under-the-skin hormonal birth control implants. I go into suggestions for healthy hormonal levels, such as sleep, exercise, regulating caffeine intake, and even phytoestrogen intake from common foods such as soy, flax, and fruits and vegetables. Now, how about we jump into those details? Let's start off with what is the function of estrogen? Estrogen is responsible for the production of female sexual reproductive organs. I think everyone has a fairly good understanding of that. But beyond this, estrogen may also play a role in protecting the brain. Stein and Hoffman in the Journal of Pediatric Rehabilitation wrote a great review on how the female sex hormones, estrogen and progesterone, may be protective for the brain in the scenario of acute brain injury such as with stroke or concussion. 
there is evidence to suggest that estrogen and progesterone treatment enhance antioxidant mechanisms. They can reduce excitotoxicity, alter glutamate receptor activity, reduce immune inflammation, provide neurotrophic support, and stimulate the regeneration of neurons and connections within the brain after a brain injury, such as a stroke or a concussion. However, it is rather confusing because in a trial of nearly 700 postmenopausal women that suffered from an ischemic stroke or transient ischemic attack, estrogen treatment did not provide any benefit against another stroke. Like it didn't provide or prevent a future stroke or didn't prevent death versus the placebo. Now, this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. So perhaps estrogen can help the brain repair after a brain injury. However, it does not necessarily seem to prevent another stroke, and it does not prevent death after a stroke. So it is important not to forget the other measures to reduce the risk of stroke would also have to be adopted. For example, a top priority would be blood pressure management, which is the top risk factor for a stroke. So if you haven't listened to episode 5 about my review on ways to manage high blood pressure, then please give it a listen. But right now, it's a really interesting area of research to investigate how estrogen is brain protective and maybe could be administered along with other ways to help with stroke recovery. As Kosha in the year 2009 in the journal Gynecological Endocrinology published how in rats, injection of a soy extract that contains phytoestrogens, which are estrogen-like compounds found in a variety of plant foods, It actually protected the brain, prevented the neurons from dying in the brain as a result of a treatment of a chemical called canic acid. So this could also be related to the protective effects of estrogen on blood vessel health as well. In the journal Cardiovascular Research in 2002 by Mikola, they reviewed how estrogen in humans and in non-human primates has shown a protective effect on heart and blood vessel health. And also, it seems to prevent the formation of clogged arteries, which is otherwise called atherosclerosis. This would have important implications for the risk of certain types of traumatic brain injuries, such as stroke, or particularly ischemic stroke. Second, estrogen may play a role in the onset of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, and is really interestingly being looked at as a potential treatment for those suffering with PTSD. Because many studies have shown that estrogen treatment induces fear memory extinction in animal models, meaning it reduces the ability to store a fearful memory. It reduces the anxiety-like response to the recollection of that memory or to be in the same context in which that stressful event occurred. This was reviewed very well by Glover in the journal Biological Psychiatry in 2015. The reason for why estrogen may prevent fear memory is not well understood, but it is speculated to be due to the impact of estrogen on the activity of a brain region called the amygdala. This brain region is important for fear memory learning and is very responsive to sex hormones such as estrogen and progesterone. And I think an entire episode on this topic alone would be very interesting as a future episode. But those are two areas right now you know, looking at estrogen as a way to protect the brain after an acute injury like stroke and concussion, and looking at estrogen as a way to treat PTSD are two really big emerging areas 
that I think would be really interesting to go more in depth in the future, particularly when more research is coming out. But what about other functions uh, that exist for estrogen? Well, estrogen and progesterone levels are fairly stable in men, but estrogen fluctuates quite a bit in normally cycling women, meaning women that have not gone through menopause and women that are not taking systemic contraceptives, such as a birth control pill or a hormonal implant under, under the skin. Estrogen tends to rise after menstruation and peaks right before ovulation. The effects of estrogen on female behavior is very interesting. For example, animal studies have shown that during this pre-ovulation and ovulation phase when estrogen is highest, when an animal is most likely to become pregnant, it seems to exhibit more exploratory behavior and more social behavior. Mora in 1996 in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology observed female rat exploratory behavior during different phases of their cycle. The scientists noted that during the rat's proestrus and estrus phase, which represents in humans the time just before and during ovulation, the female rats explored more and had less passive avoidance versus the other phases of their cycle, which makes sense that a female animal is more willing to explore and more willing to interact with other rats if their body is prepared to find a mate. Dreyer in 2007, in the journal PNAS, used functional MRI, which is a method used to assess brain region activity during different phases of the menstrual cycle in women during a decision-making task. Now, it was a rather complicated study, but to summarize it very simply, the scientists showed that there was more brain region activity in the reward centers of the brain when a reward was provided to the women during their mid-follicular phase or just before ovulation phase when estrogen is highest and when progesterone is lowest. The study suggests that when estrogen is highest, rewards may be more rewarding or more salient during this phase of the menstrual cycle. So when estrogen is highest, it appears that animals explore more, they're more social, and in humans, it appears that things that are rewarding are more rewarding. Now let's look at the hormone progesterone. One of my projects in my lab right now actually focuses on the effects of progesterone on particular regions of the brain and how this may induce feelings of anxiety specifically in females and it could increase the propensity to consume more alcohol during this time. I hope to be able to share the details of this research with all of you soon once it is published, but briefly it's really interesting to look at the impact of progesterone on anxiety levels, on specific brain region activity, and how the cycle, a female cycle, may be related to alcohol use disorder. Progesterone levels rise in normally cycling women after ovulation, which is in the luteal phase, and it seems to peak during this premenstrual phase. Now, the premenstrual phase is when women with PMS or PMDD, which is a more severe form of PMS, it's referred to as premenstrual dysphoric disorder. They seem to exhibit the symptoms the greatest at this point, right before menstruation. The symptoms include anxiety, depression, pain, lack of desire for social interaction, bloating, insomnia, constipation, and more. It is thought that these symptoms may be related to progesterone, which is highest at this point during the cycle. Have you ever wondered why some women feel these symptoms during this time? Well, physiologically, it makes sense because progesterone gets converted into corticosterone, which is the body's stress hormone. So it is thought that, in part, the reason why women feel anxious or more stressed 
during this period of time is because of progesterone's conversion to corticosterone, which is known to cause those feelings. Secondly, progesterone is also converted to the hormone aldosterone, which causes the body to retain and hold onto water and salt ions. As a result of the effects of aldosterone constipation and bloating and is far more common during this time. Then when menstruation occurs, progesterone levels fall, as well corticosterone falls and aldosterone falls, and that is when the symptoms start to alleviate for many women. Gingnell in the journal Hormones and Behavior in the year 2012 reported among women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, during their premenstrual phase, their progesterone levels in their blood were positively correlated with the activity of the brain region, the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is a brain region that regulates many processes, including eating behavior, fear, emotional responses, motivation, and reward learning. It appears that progesterone levels that cycle through a woman's natural menstrual cycle may impact the activity of this brain region and therefore their behavior. And remember, this is the same brain region that I had mentioned uh, that is very important in regard to PTSD as well. Now, it's important to note that women who take systemic contraceptives, such as the birth control pill or the implantable hormone under the skin, their levels of estrogen and progesterone are markedly different. And therefore, the effects of these hormones on their behavior, brain region activity, and other symptoms such as bloating, constipation, mood, energy, etc., will also be very different from women that are not on systemic contraceptives. For example, Khalid in 1976 in the journal BMJ reported in 19 women that their serum estrogen levels in the contraceptive use group were much lower than those in the controls not using contraceptives. In fact, the women that were using contraceptives had estrogen levels similar to women that had already undergone menopause. Mann and colleagues in the journal Menopause in 2008 reported that in nearly 2,000 women, those who had a history of oral contraceptive use tended to have lower levels of estrogens, testosterone, and sex hormone binding globulin concentrations compared to never users. And that was independent of age, body mass index, smoking, physical activity, reproductive factors, etc. Now, testosterone is also affected by oral contraceptives. Stanton in 2011 in the journal Physiology and Behavior measured in over 700 people the fluctuations in hormone levels in men and women throughout the year. They wanted to look at seasonal changes of hormones. And they had noticed that testosterone levels in men and in young women not on oral contraceptives seemed to be highest in the fall and lowest in the summer, interestingly. Women using hormonal contraceptives not only had consistently lower testosterone concentrations, but also showed fewer fluctuations in their testosterone levels. So it appears as though taking a hormonal contraceptive really just flattens out the natural hormone profile. It really reduces the levels in the circulating blood. It reduces estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and it also prevents the fluctuations in those hormones as well. Now to clarify the effects of oral contraceptives, they are synthetic hormones that will activate the estrogen or progesterone receptors, but they are different from the natural progesterone and estrogen that our body makes as the synthetic hormones are not converted into the typical metabolites in our body. For example, progestins that are in the hormonal contraceptives are not 
converted into testosterone, corticosterone, or aldosterone, whereas the natural progesterone in the body is converted to these later hormones. So their effects are essentially quite different on the body because of this. Now, when women take the sugar pill or the placebo pill during their oral contraceptive routine, that is when activation of these hormonal receptors drops and menstruation and sometimes feelings of mood changes can occur at this point in time. But meanwhile, the natural levels of estrogen and progesterone are quite low and maintained as low because these synthetic hormones will suppress the production of the natural endogenous hormones in their body. Now, because of the important effects of progesterone and estrogen on the brain, these synthetic hormones are very likely to impact mood and brain region activity. Paramna in 2011 reported that in a prospective trial, the frequency of women who report deteriorated mood, worsening of emotional well-being, up to 10% of women say that their mood became worse when they started an oral contraceptive pill. Kulkarni in 2007 wrote that the most common reason women would stop taking oral contraceptives is because of the depressive-like symptoms associated with it. So this suggests the really important role of these hormones on mood and potentially even brain activity. So if you by chance are experiencing feelings of depression or anxiety and you are taking an oral contraceptive, it could be a good idea to speak to your physician about your oral contraceptive use. Next, I want to jump into the situation of menopause. Because during menopause, the ovaries become less active, levels of estrogen and progesterone start to decline. Along with this, changes in sleeping behavior, body temperature, mood, body weight, facial hair, etc. may be experienced. Interestingly, testosterone levels are not as significantly affected as estrogen and progesterone in menopause. Some argue that the symptoms experienced by women during menopause is simply because their testosterone is no longer being opposed by the higher estrogen and progesterone. As a result, hormone replacement therapy has been investigated to help alleviate symptoms of menopause. Now, one thing I wondered myself was, what is the difference between oral contraceptives and hormone replacement therapy? Because aren't they both just simply synthetic hormones? Well, Cartwright in 2013 described that hormone replacement therapy that is often used for menopause or women that have had to have their ovaries removed through surgical means or because of chemotherapy or other medications that have reduced the function of their ovaries, hormone replacement therapy may be used. But hormone replacement therapy is often considered to be more physiological because most preparations contain estradiol, which is the natural form of estrogen in our body, whereas oral contraceptives contain the synthetic ethanol-O-estradiol, and also they seem to contain higher levels of progestin than the hormone replacement therapy. So there are some differences between the two. But there is some concern that hormone replacement therapy during menopause may increase the risk of breast cancer or cardiovascular events. I say this because a landmark study published in The Lancet in 2003 in the Million Women Study recruited over 1 million women to understand the effects of hormone replacement therapy in menopause on breast cancer risk. And the scientists had found that after nearly three years, over 9,000 incident cases of breast cancer were recorded. And women taking hormone replacement therapy were 66% more likely to develop breast cancer and 22% more likely to die from breast cancer versus women 
that had never undergone hormone replacement therapy. The effect was substantially greater for the combination of estrogen and progestogen versus other types of hormone replacement therapy. Further, a case control study in nearly 2,000 women under the age of 55 reported that combination use of oral contraceptive for 10 years or more and then hormone replacement therapy for 3 years or more had a 3.2-fold higher increased risk for breast cancer, so an even higher risk than what the previous trial had reported. Women with intolerable menopausal symptoms may wish to weigh the benefits of symptom relief against the risk. Hormone replacement therapy may not be suitable for women who are at an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, that are at an increased risk of thromboembolic disease, such as those with obesity or a history of venous thrombosis, or an increased risk of some types of cancer, such as breast cancer or in women with a uterus. The elevated risk of endometrial cancer among women with a uterus taking estrogen-only hormone replacement therapy is well documented. So are there alternatives to raising our hormone levels then if, if you're concerned about the potential risks? Well, many women may experience changes in their hormonal levels and perhaps want to try to raise or even lower their levels depending on their particular situation. For example, you may want to increase your hormonal levels during a time when you are trying to get pregnant or during menopause. And opposingly, you may want to lower your levels of progesterone, for example, if you find that you're suffering from premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is very closely linked to progesterone and corticosterone and aldosterone. So let's start off with how to lower progesterone or estrogen levels. Well, Rose in 1991 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition reported that a high-fiber diet can actually reduce estrogen levels because it might bind to estrogen and remove it from the body. They noted that increasing fiber intake from 15 to 30 grams per day with the use of wheat bran significantly reduced estrone and estradiol, but did not impact progesterone. Conversely, oat bran and corn bran did not seem to impact hormone levels, so it appeared to be specific to wheat bran. Katso Pelos in 2009 in the journal Cancer reported that in over 1,200 women, those who consumed the most caffeine, which was greater than 371 milligrams per day, tended to have lower levels of estrogen and higher levels of progesterone. So if you suffer from premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or you're told that you have higher levels of progesterone or particularly low levels of estrogen, and you tend to consume a lot of caffeine, more than 371 milligrams per day, it could be worthwhile to cut back on your caffeine intake and see if that improves your symptoms. So to put that amount of caffeine into perspective, 8 ounces of coffee contains on average about 100 to 120 milligrams of caffeine. So a venti coffee at Starbucks could have around 300 milligrams of caffeine, which is near that maximum level. And one espresso shot has about 60 to 70 milligrams of caffeine. But there are other beverages and foods that could contribute to your caffeine intake, such as green tea, black tea, energy drinks, sodas, dark chocolate, and cocoa. So just keep those in mind. Other common symptoms of PMS and PMDD that are brought on by higher progesterone and aldosterone include bloating, constipation, and lack of energy. Common things that can make these worse include things that increase the attraction of water, such as high salt or sodium intake, high sugar and refined carbohydrate intake, and high purified amino acid intake, like from protein powders. 
So to reduce the severity of these symptoms, you can reduce the intake of salt and sodium from common high sources such as from cured meats, cheeses, fast foods, ready prepared foods. You can cut down on your refined carbohydrate intake, so avoiding white pasta, white bread, white rice, for example. Avoid candies and desserts. And avoiding processed protein powders with purified amino acids, which would also cause you to hold on to a lot of water. And instead, you could try eating a healthy source of anti-inflammatory fats that may improve symptoms of PMS, as published in a pilot study by Sorabi in 2013. So you could try adding some sources of omega-3 fatty acids, such as from flaxseed, chia seed, walnuts, and salmon and sardines, for example. Now, if you want to raise your levels of progesterone and estrogen because you want to increase your chances of pregnancy or because you want to alleviate some menopausal symptoms, here are a few suggestions. Phytoestrogens are an interesting area of research. Instead of hormone replacement therapy, many women are looking to phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are naturally present in a lot of plant-based foods, such as soy, flaxseed, whole wheat, fruits, and vegetables. Phytoestrogens have antioxidant effects. In fact, resveratrol from wine and grape skin, which has a lot of scientific evidence to support its health benefits, is also categorized as a phytoestrogen. The phytoestrogens have a chemical structure very similar to estrogen and therefore can act on the estrogen receptors alpha and beta. The impact of phytoestrogens on estrogenic activity, though, is not very clear just yet because phytoestrogens in these foods can either activate or inhibit estrogen receptor activity. And scientists are still trying to figure out what foods or what particular phytoestrogens activate or inhibit. And there seems to be even differences across different tissues in the body or different organs and even within different brain regions. So it is still a big area of research to really have that we still have to figure out. But nevertheless, Cedaroth in 2012 in the journal Molecular and Cellular Endocrinology published a review on the health effects of the phytoestrogens, soy isoflavones, lignans, and cumistans. Now, isoflavone amounts in soy protein isolate, edamame, and soy flour, they noted, were highest at about 100 to 170 milligrams per 100 grams. But the amount of the phytoestrogens in soy milk, tofu, or soy protein extracted through alcohol were lower by comparison. But the authors in this review essentially concluded that There just isn't enough consistent high-quality data to make any conclusions on the impact of soy or phytoestrogen intake on reproductive function in humans. And they said a lot of the studies, in fact, showed no effect on reproductive function. So taking phytoestrogens may not impact your fertility. Lefart in 2002 in the journal Neurotoxicology and Teratology concluded that a phytoestrogen-rich diet provided to male and female rats resulted in decreased anxiety-like behavior and enhanced memory and cognition versus a low phytoestrogen diet. So it may have some benefits on cognition and memory, but keep in mind that this was done in rodents and not humans. Bettel and colleagues in 2014 in the Journal of Steroid Biochemistry and Molecular Biology wrote a great review on the ability of phytoestrogens to be used during menopause in order to reduce menopausal symptoms and to potentially replace hormone replacement therapy. However, the data is conflicting because Kotsopoulos in the year 2000 in the journal Climacteric 
concluded that a 118 milligram supplement of mixed phytoestrogens did not improve menopausal symptoms in a randomized, double-blinded, controlled clinical study with 94 women. So it appears that eating a diet rich in phytoestrogens such as rich in soy and flaxseed or taking a phytoestrogen supplement may or may not have an impact. That could be due to many reasons. For example, the phytoestrogens need to be converted to their active metabolites by the bacteria in our gut before being absorbed into our bloodstream. So differences in bacterial population in the intestines across people could impact the ability of phytoestrogens to have an impact on menopausal symptoms in women. So in my opinion, you could try adding phytoestrogen-rich foods to your diet because a lot of these foods are already very healthy and nutrient-dense. For example, soy is a great vegetable uh, protein source, and it's eaten across a lot of countries, particularly in Asian countries. Soy intake and phytoestrogen intake is very high, and they also tend to have a lower risk of cancer. That is just an association, but it is an observation that a lot of scientists have made. And phytoestrogens are rich in a lot of plant-based foods, such as flaxseed, other seeds, and fruits and vegetables. So you could try adding these phytoestrogen-rich foods to your diet and see if it helps make an impact on your symptoms. Now, if hormone replacement therapy potentially increases the risk of breast cancer, then what about phytoestrogens? Do they? Well, there are just animal or observational studies, meaning that by observational study, they ask women what their diet is like and if they have been diagnosed with cancer. And they try to find an association between diet and their risk of cancer. So far, it appears, if anything, that phytoestrogen-rich foods seem to reduce the risk of cancer in observational trials. But an interventional trial would be ideal to have a final answer here. An intervention trial would mean that they would recruit a large group of women and have half the women consume phytoestrogen-rich foods and the other half doesn't. Then to follow these women for several years and monitor their incidence of cancer. But to be honest, nutrition trials like this are very hard to fund and very difficult to conduct. In fact, I wrote an article on this difficulty and how, how many more reasons there are as to how it's so difficult to conduct long-term nutrition trials. And in my opinion, I think that's part of the reason why in our medical system today, we don't have a lot of recommendations around nutrition or alternative therapies, just because they are so much more difficult to investigate. And maybe I'll do an episode just on that alone as an interest piece. But nevertheless, regardless of the availability of this intervention trial, the observational trials show that if anything, phytoestrogens are associated with a lower risk of cancer. So perhaps phytoestrogen-rich foods could be a good alternative to hormone replacement therapy. But besides phytoestrogens, how else can we increase our levels of hormones during menopause? Well, sleep is also very important for hormonal levels. I previously shared in episode 16 that testosterone levels rise to their highest levels during deep REM sleep, and if sleep quality is compromised, then testosterone levels fall. Well, studies have shown that in women with poor quality sleep, they also tend to have lower estrogen levels in their blood. For example, in the journal Sleep in 2007, Murphy and Campbell conducted a sleep study in 10 postmenopausal women with an average age of 65 years. They measured their sleep quality with polysomnography. They divided the 10 women into those who had better deep sleep quality versus those with poorer sleep quality. They found a weak correlation of 0.34 for sleep length of time 
and estrogen levels, meaning that 34% of the variation seen in women's estrogen levels could be explained by the length of time that they sleep. They found that estrogen levels were double that in the good sleep quality group versus those with lower sleep quality. So it is possible that there is a link between estrogen levels and sleep. Anyway, it is always a good suggestion to try your best to get a good night's rest because of the important health benefits. Back in episode 16, I also mentioned the importance of the glymphatic system and for the reduced risk of, you know, protein aggregation and neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. And I may do an entire episode alone just on that as well. Can you see, I think in this episode, I already have come up with about 10 new ideas for other episodes, which is great. And if you have suggestions for other episodes, I'd love to hear them as well. But nevertheless, in that episode, I gave some sleep tips in the testosterone episode, but briefly here, some suggestions on good quality sleep is to limit your exposure to blue light, which is common. We get blue light from our cell phones, our computers, our TV screens. And so try to limit your blue light exposure one hour before bed because blue light tells our brain to stay awake and it prevents the formation and release of melatonin, which is really important for our sleep cycle. Other suggestions are to have a warm shower before bed, which can aid in sleep quality. Trying to keep your bedroom at a cooler temperature also aids in sleep quality. Getting dark blackout curtains or wearing a sleep eye mask can also help. And sleep scientists suggest aiming for 7-9 to hours of sleep per night. Lastly, another suggestion to have healthy hormonal levels is exercise. Bonin in 1979 conducted an experiment in which they recruited 10 young women with the average age of 21 years. They had the women perform 30 minutes of intense exercise. The scientists noted that compared to their levels of hormones in their blood prior to exercise, they noted an increased progesterone by 38% and increased estrogen by 14% in the young women. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, on today's episode about estrogen and progesterone. Estrogen and progesterone are important hormones in everyone, not just women, but in men as well, because progesterone and estrogen can impact brain activity and behavior. Estrogen seems to be protective for the brain following stroke, concussion, and a traumatic, fearful event. Future research is focusing upon these areas, and I think that those are really fascinating areas to look at other treatments such as estrogen and how they can have important implications for brain health and response to traumatic brain injury in both men and women. Estrogen and progesterone fluctuate throughout a woman's natural cycle and can contribute to changes in mood and physiology. For example, in animals in the pre-ovulation and ovulation phase when estrogen is highest, more exploration and social interaction is common. Whereas in the post-ovulation or post-estrous phase when progesterone is highest, which is the premenstrual phase in humans, more anxiety-like behavior is noted. fMRI studies show that higher estrogen during the pre-ovulation or follicular phase in women may make rewarding things more salient or more re- appear more rewarding. In contrast, progesterone is converted to corticosterone and aldosterone and therefore contributes to PMS and PMDD symptoms of bloating, anxiety, depression, and antisocial feelings. Oral contraceptives reduce the natural levels of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in the body. Ways to maintain healthy hormonal levels including getting good sleep, 
exercise, limiting caffeine, and perhaps to eat some phytoestrogen-rich foods such as soy, flax, and fruits and vegetables. So that is it, my People Scientist Army. I hope you all have a super healthy week, and I'm looking forward to meeting you all back here next week for another episode, the same time and the same place, only here on the People Scientist Podcast. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.